John, the big get, is one of the most influential sports TV executives of all time, Sean McManus. And Andrew, we're going to talk about baseball, golf, Dion, Woj, Taylor Swift, of course, and Toy Story. He gains four yards as a group of Jaguars make the tackle. And you see the Skycam being operated today by an alien operated by the claw as well. At least we know he'll have all eyes on the camera. <laughs> And we're back. The Marshan Oran Sports Media Podcast. I'm Andrew Marshan, sports media columnist for the New York Post. He's John Oran, the media reporter for the Sports Business Journal. And we have a big get coming up in a few minutes. Sean McManus retiring. We go long into his career. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy that. But first, John, let's do who's up and who's down. Why don't you start us off? All right. My who's up is Rob Manfred. He was the big get on the Marshan and Oran Sports Media Podcast last week, and he is the uh, commissioner of Major League Baseball. All right, John. So we see a little trend here. You're you, you big get, and then you get a who's up. All right. Pretty good for Manfred. Probably a good strategy by uh, MLB PR, getting him on the podcast. Well, you know what? What a, what a season this, is, this has been for Rob Manfred. He pushed through a bunch of rule changes, including putting in the uh, pitch clock, uh, getting rid of the shift, um, making the, the the bases bigger. And we are now seeing, after after a full season, the effects of making those changes. Attendance at Major League Games, they're up more than 9%. That's a huge number, uh, paced by big uh, big gains in Cincinnati and Cleveland and, of course, in, in, in Baltimore. It's the biggest attendance jump in the league going back to the 1980s. Uh, game times. They have dropped 24 minutes on average, two hours and 40 minutes for a game. It's uh, it's it's helping to get attendance up, uh, TV ratings. As people are cutting the cord, are are maintaining. Uh, they're they're still doing well in, on, a, on a local level. They're doing uh, okay on on the national level. I think every single rule change that Manfred had pushed through has uh, has has really paid off this season. So who's up, Rob Manfred? John, my who's up is Adrian Wojnarowski from ESPN. Woj. He was the big winner of the Dame Lillard sweepstakes. Uh, he's been reporting for a long time that it wasn't definitive that he's going to go to Miami, that Portland wanted to look at other places. Uh, he took a lot of slings and arrows, especially from uh, Miami's own Dan Lebitard, who, show, who said that, uh, that Woj was bought and paid for by Portland, very personal attacks. Um, and, you know, Woj stuck to the facts. Uh, and then the facts, you know, came through in terms of uh, Portland trading uh, Lillard to Milwaukee. Uh, and so, uh, and then to add a little bit cherry on top, his chief rival, Shams Sharania of The Athletic and Stadium and FanDuel, uh, he, um, he tweeted out the wrong team. Uh, in terms of uh, at the when the when the news first broke, uh, he had him going to Toronto instead of Milwaukee. Then he quickly changed it. And then to add to it, our boy Ben Strouts at the college's own Washington Post, he had a long, long story about Woj and Shams, and he called Woj a mafia don, and he called Shams a golden retriever. Uh, so it was good lines there uh, from Strauss. So Woj is my who's up. All right, my who's down. Did you watch the Ryder Cup, Andrew? I watched some of it. 
Uh, my who's down, Paul Azinger. He was a, a, the analyst on NBC's coverage of the Ryder Cup. Uh, for those who don't know, Europe crushed the U.S. this year. It wasn't even close. And sure enough, as the U.S. was losing in a really bad way, reports leaked out about dissension on the U.S. team. Uh, they centered on Patrick Cantlay, who uh, refused to wear a hat, uh, which, according to reports, was a subtle protest over the fact that golfers weren't getting paid to uh, play in, in the Ryder Cup. And this matters because as you're watching the telecast, all of the European fans were taking off their hats and waving them in Cantley's face. And viewers were like, if you didn't know that story, which I didn't, it was early morning, I'd only had a cup of coffee. You didn't know what, what was going on. Uh, uh, the crowd, they were singing songs about it. And before even explaining it to the viewers, uh, what was going on, Azinger ripped all the reports. He called it a garbage story, called it clickbait. I think it was on Sky Sports website. Uh, uh, he took the American line that uh, players weren't feeling well, and that's why why they weren't weren't playing well. Uh, the, he took that line, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, here's an exact quote that he said on the air. Quote, people love to tear people down in social media. It's a sewer sometimes, and I hope I'm right. I just think it's a garbage story. You hope you're right? Come on, be an analyst. Respect your viewers. The U.S. team was getting killed. Viewers wanted to know what was happening. We're not looking for a cheerleader to try to hope or will the U.S. to victory. I, I just thought that was terrible. My who's down is NBC's Chris Collinsworth. Now, I like Collinsworth overall as an analyst. I think he does a very good job, well-prepared. But he can be over the top sometimes and just go, uh, just get on a uh, theme and not let go of it. And this past Sunday on the Jets game with Zach Wilson, it was way too much. I mean, he's his job, like you just said, it's not to be a cheerleader. It's to analyze the game. And Zach Wilson did end up having a pretty good game. But the way he was almost giving him a pep talk after every play that was semi-good or okay, like he was rooting for a good game, which of course you want a good game, but it just wasn't analysis. It was too much in terms of uh, just hoping that you can find a silver lining uh, in Zach Wilson's play. Now, I will say overall, the media, especially ex-players, uh, have been ruthless uh, with Zach Wilson, um, maybe deserved because he did not look good, but it's kind of felt very personal. And we saw that with Rodney Harrison later uh, that night uh, with NBC. Uh, he later apparently apologized uh, to Wilson because he called him garbage. Um, it just seemed very personal. Collinsworth almost went the other way. It was too much. Uh, and so I just found it pretty grating uh, during Sunday night's broadcast. So Chris Collinsworth gets my who's down. All right, we have the big get, Sean McManus, uh, coming up, but let's get to, uh, to the topics. Sunday morning on ESPN+, Plus, you had the Jaguars and the Falcons playing from London. Uh, ESPN also had an alternate telecast, the Toy Story telecast. I know you watched part of it, Andrew. What did you think? Yeah, I watched a good amount of it. Uh, look, I thought it was a win for ESPN+, Plus and ESPN, and the NFL. Um, it was not perfect. They had a lot of technical difficulties, especially at the beginning. Uh, I do think technologically there's a lot going on there. I mean, I don't know if it matters that the game's in London, but the game was in London. And then you're trying to recreate uh, Andy's room from Toy Story, you know, with the players on the field. But I think it's smart. Like, I, you know, looks and they're trying to uh, brainwash young people into watching the NFL. Uh, they're worried about, you know, people, uh, younger people, especially not watching NFL games. 
So you start them off uh, young. Uh, and so I thought it was a good idea. Obviously, it takes over uh, from the theme of the Nickelodeon uh, Slime Time uh, broadcast with uh, Nate Burleson and Noah Eagle. And I thought I thought it was pretty good. Uh, not perfect. I thought they could have I thought I think they, they could have cheesed it up a little more, in my opinion. Uh, I'm not, of course, the target audience you're trying to get towards kids with parents who are watching. Uh, but I thought it was not bad. Yeah, see, I'm going to suggest that you are identically the target audience that is going to watch this game and decide like, oh, this is how kids want to watch football. I think kids, they want to watch football. That's how I watch football as, as a kid. Like, I don't want to be stuck at the kids table. I want to get to the big table. I Look, it was a technical marvel what ESPN w w was able to do, even with some of the glitches that, that, that you talked about. So I don't want to take away from that. It really was uh, fascinating to watch. But I think even the Nickelodeon slime game and this and th this the 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 Toy Story game, I have kids. That's not how they watch it. My kids would have sat down and watched that, and they wouldn't have lasted past one one commercial interruption. I think this is for millennials or young young Gen uh, Gen Xers who want to just kind of go retro and remember their their youths uh, fondly and and that's how they want to watch it i just i think that there's a lot of press and a lot of ink being spilled on things that aren't really doing a lot to uh generate younger younger viewers so john i'm gonna i don't want to overdo it here but you could not be more wrong uh, <laughs> the reason first off it's an alt cast if this was your only choice, then sure. All right. But you have to opt into that. I mean, this is a lot of opting in. You got to opt into ESPN. First of all, the game's at 930. So a lot of people aren't going to know the game's on. Secondly, you got to have ESPN+. Plus. Then you got to opt into that. Then you got to opt into Toy Story. You, ha It's an effort to get the Toy Story. So I'm sure, you know, they didn't get a million people watching this. Uh, but I think it's worth the attempt. Uh, and I, I don't think it hurts. Like, I, I think with the, the where we are technology, it's different than when you're doing like, you know, Booger McFarland happened to be on this broadcast, but when you had like the Booger Mobile, you're trying to recreate how you broadcast a game on Monday Night Football and have a guy, uh, you know, on a crane, then we had no other choices back then. So I think when you do an alt cast, you're giving people choices and you're trying out new things. And so, yeah, if your kids wanted to watch the game normally, you could, you know, Fowler, Riddick and, uh, Olofsky were doing the game, you know, just had a flip uh, on ESPN plus I watched their broadcast as well. Um, and so I had a double TV going. Uh, and so, uh, so you could watch both. So you had to, you had to opt in. So that's why you're entirely wrong. No, well, of course I agree with that. I mean, the whole idea of alternate telecasts is something that, that, you know, helps expand the number of people that are watching. I'm just suggesting to you that these telecasts tailored to kids are really tailored to, 18 to 34 year olds that uh, want to sort of re recreate their youth. Oh, you said it. All right. We got to talk about Taylor Swift. You just said Taylor twice. So <laughs> we have to talk about Taylor Swift. I've got a blank space, baby, and I'll write your name. We got to talk about Taylor Swift and we are a sports media podcast. Um, I just said you were wrong about something. We both agree that the idea that Taylor Swift is really impacting TV ratings is kind of preposterous. Well, I think she's impacting TV ratings. I think that there is a little bit of a bump, but I think it's at, at the edges there. 27 million people tuned into the, the, the Chiefs Jets. I don't think that means that 20 million of them were Swifties. I mean, you had... Well, how many Swifties? Well, hold on a second. How many do you think, just again, obviously we don't know, but how many people do you think she's bringing to that number? 
a million maybe a million that's off the top of my head i, I, I mean a million I, sounds like a pretty that's actually pretty significant if a million more people watch because of taylor swift watching the game then forget it i take back my preposterous I yeah i don't know like I, you, you caught me off guard i have no idea all i know is that the nfl is for as long as we've been doing this podcast and well before it is the most popular tv programming there is period and in prime time on Sunday Night Football, you had the defending champions with Patrick Mahomes and, yes, Travis Kelsey playing against a New York team. New York, the biggest media market in the country. And it was a one score game. Do you think that that do you think that was going to do well uh, with or without uh, Taylor Swift being in the uh, in the skybox? No, 100 percent. That You made your point in your newsletter that comes out Monday evenings uh that i thought was really good because uh it uh yeah it, that's a great matchup and it was a it was a compelling game that's the, that's probably the biggest factor in terms of the ratings you, like what you just said and then you had a game that went down to the wire uh, but it's a huge number however you look at it all right more huge numbers Deion sanders uh these ratings are unbelievable john Deion sanders 7.2 million viewers the the most watched college football game Last weekend, they that they tuned into USC at Colorado. It peaked at over 10 million viewers. I mean, the, the this is again, this is a, a team that won no games. I think won one game the season before. It was not a TV draw at all for for decades, and now all of a sudden they are the the uh, highlight of co- the college football season. And uh, they're determining where all the pregame shows go. They're getting the best time slots. Uh, I had thought going into this game that as as we get cl- further into the season, the networks are going to start to focus a lot more on on teams that are jockeying to to make the playoffs. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, these numbers are still really, really big. You know who's a huge winner in this whole Dion Colorado renaissance that we've seen? It's been both Fox and ESPN. But starting next year, ESPN uh, has a huge advantage as Colorado moves to the Big 12. They'll have two-thirds of the Big 12 games. So if Dion stays, they continue to do well. Uh, that is a huge – that Big 12 deal was great for Brett Yormark uh, in the Big 12 and obviously was – uh, terrible for the Pac-12, uh, but uh, ESPN, big winner with Colorado. Uh, if Dion stays, if they continue to be good, uh, and you can't, you you really think for a, he'll stay at least a couple more years um, that you, you foresee this being a, a ratings possible bonanza uh, for ESPN slash ABC and a little bit for Fox, but two thirds of those games of the Big 12 games are going to be ESPNs. Andrew, uh ESPN got rid of Jeff Van Gundy, got rid of Mark Jackson. You had a little bit of news on uh, Mark Jackson in your newsletter that comes out Sunday nights, New York Sports Post Plus. There you go. New York Post Sports Plus. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and Monday mornings, but you, you, you're pretty you, close. Oh, I see. I read them Sunday night. Don't you Don't you uh, tweet that out Sunday night? I don't night? know, unless you're hacking my computer. All right, all right. Uh, comes out six let in let the me, morning. Let me, do, let me do that again. No, let no, leave it. Leave it. All right, leave it. <laughs> People need to know. People need to know John dreams of reading the newsletter on Sunday nights. And he, he thinks he's got the news before he's like, no, you, you know what it is. You read it. And you're like, Oh, I already knew that. I knew that. I already. I knew knew that. That. <laughs> By the way, I totally read it that way. Yeah. There's nothing new here. No, I, I, you didn't I, know I, this, I, though. 
Mark I send Jackson. Abe an email and I say, Abe, there, there's nothing new here. Nothing. <laughs> I already knew all that stuff. <laughs> Mark Jackson uh, was let go in June, at the end of June, along with Jeff Van Gundy. A little bit of surprise that uh, they, uh, you know, took a part there. Number one broadcast, which was the most well-received broadcast that they had in terms of their top sports, you know, not including probably Buck and Aikman now with Monday Night Football. Um, and then you could argue some others, but, but Mark Jackson looks like he's going to do some games for MSG network, uh, and the Knicks, uh, they have Clyde Frazier, who's their number one analyst with Mike Breen, of course, uh, who was the longtime partner of Van Gundy and Jackson, the Knicks and MSG are also interested in Van Gundy. That looks very unlikely to happen. Um, you know, the way the contracts work, ESPN, uh, is not necessarily letting everyone do anything they want. It seems like it's case by case. I don't really understand why that is uh, fully, but Mark Jackson looks like he might do some Knicks games. It's trending that way. I, I'd say I think it's going to happen, uh, but it's not done yet. Uh, so that's an interesting development. Jordan Cornette uh, is going to be working for Peacock, former ESPNer, also let go. Uh, it's going to be on their Big Ten uh, coverage, which was also in that newsletter. You probably knew about it, but uh, it was also in that newsletter on Sunday with some <laughs> other news and nuggets as well. Before we get to Sean McManus, Sinclair, uh, you had some timeline on Sinclair and MLB. Last week we had Manfred uh, basically saying they run a terrible business. It's not our fault. We have a good product and they you know, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, that's what I took of it. That was my translation. It was not that far off, I think. Uh, when you look at Sinclair and the future, what do you see? Well, last week I had David Preschlack, who runs up a Diamond Sports Group, as my who's down. And the, the reason is that last week was supposed to be the week that that really determined the future of the Bally Sports RSNs because they, you had a deal with Comcast that was coming up. You had negotiations going on with DirecTV that were that were happening. You had um, the negotiations with the creditors that were going on. And what happened was everybody kicked the can down the road. Uh, Diamond. Uh, asked ask for a, an extension to file a plan uh, that the judge has not okayed yet, but is likely to okay. That'll extend in another two months. Uh, Comcast got it. Uh, uh, they haven't signed anything yet, but what I'm told is they've agreed to an extension that sort of goes into next year. And DirecTV has said, oh, we're not going to open up our deal. We're just going to let it run its course to next fall. So the date that you should have circled, if you care about this, on your calendar is February 29th, Leap Day, because that is the day that uh, Diamond Sports deal with Charter is up. Hmm. And we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about Charter and Disney. Charter is uh, gearing for a fight, and that's going to be a really, really important one for the de uh, to determine the future of the Valley Sports RSNs. It just seems appropriate. It's on Leap Day for some reason. I don't know why, but it just does to me. <laughs> All right, John, let's bring in the big get. Sean McManus retiring 27 years as the head of CBS Sports. Five and a half of those years also he headed up news at CBS. Most recent title. It's always I was impressed by this title, John. Chairman of CBS Sports. I mean, you're not president, not CEO, you're chairman. It's it's so important. Uh Sean, first off, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys. I uh, I love this podcast, listen to it every week. So good job. And I'm happy to uh Happy to join you for a few minutes. Well, Sean, uh, big news last week. Uh, after 27 years, uh, you announced that you're stepping down as chairman of uh, CBS Sports after the Masters. Um, I've spent some Sunday afternoons in the fall with you, and uh, I've curled around with you uh, occasionally at the Final Four. You have 
one of the great jobs in the world, certainly in the country. I mean, running CBS Sports and, and running the division. Why are you stepping away from it? You know, it's a good question. It um, It is a great job. And I've often said to people that I would do this job for free. Um, having said that, um, it'll be almost 28 years uh, after the Masters next year. Uh, we've had a succession plan in place really for more than a decade with David Burson, who you both know well, who has been my number two. Um, he is ready to uh, take over. Um, the good news is that most of our really uh, marquee events are secure through the end of the decade. And I just thought um, I've had a great run. Um, I want to do other things, um, not necessarily professionally, but perhaps in a nonprofit way. Um, and I just thought the timing was right. Um, uh, I've, I've, I've enjoyed um, pretty much everything the last 27 years, although the, the industry is much more challenging now than it's ever been. Uh, but I'm ready to um, uh, to move on. And uh, my two bosses, uh, George Cheeks and Bob Backish, and I uh, really agreed in uh, in June of 22 that this would be the best timing. So I think the timing is great for me. It's great for David. And I think it's great for CBS Sports and Paramount. Have you processed what it's going to be like next September, probably on week one of the NFL season? When uh, you're used to being part of the action, have you processed what that, that's going to be like for you or how you're going to counteract sort of, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the feelings that you have coming out of that? You know, I've thought about that a lot. It'll definitely be different. Um, you know, having done it since 1998, um, I think I've, I've um, done probably enough of those Sundays. But listen, I love being in the studio. I love the camaraderie. I will miss that. Uh, but I still feel really good about uh, my decision. And, you know, uh, the Masters in, in 2025, you know, I'll, I'll watch that from home for the first time since 1997. And you can go through all of our other great events, whether it's the, um, you know, March Madness or SEC, soon to be Big Ten football, PGA of America, PGA Tour, all those events. Um, I'm lucky that I've not only had a chance to oversee the presentation, but I've gotten to know the uh, the men and the women who are involved in those great organizations, and they'll be friends of mine for life. So, um, you know, it'll be an adjustment for me, but I'm definitely ready for it. And Sean, you're known for deal making, and we're going to get into, like, you know, get behind the scenes and some of those deals that you've made, uh, you know, at your time at CBS sports, but take us back first to, you know, a lot of people, everyone basically listening to this podcast knows your dad uh, was the legendary sportscaster, Jim McKay, just as a kid growing up in that environment, what was your goals? And when you looked at sports media, um, what was that like for you? And then you take it through, you know, how your career started and, and, and where you are now. Uh, can you take us through that? Sure. No, listen, it was thrilling to be the son of Jim McKay. I got to go to Indianapolis 500s, U.S. Open golf events, um, the World Synchronized Swimming Championships in Albany, New York, uh, to the World Barrel Jumping Championships in <laughs> Grossinger's, New York. So I grew up in and around the men and women of, of ABC Sports as they were really inventing sports television in many ways underneath the... Uh, 
the great Rune Arledge. Uh, when I was 11 years old, I went to the Jacksonville Open PGA Tour event in Florida with my dad. And Chuck Howard, the producer, said, uh, Sean, would you like to work? And uh, ignoring all the child labor laws, I said, I'd love to. So I spent the next um, three days sweeping out the truck, emptying ashtrays because everybody smoked then, uh, bringing refreshments to the announcers and the crew. And when the event was over on Sunday, Erwin uh, Wiener, who was the production manager and would one day become Rune's top financial uh, CFO, said to me, Sean, you go over and get in the pay line. I said, what's the pay line? And he said, well, that's where people get paid. So I got in line. I walked up to the front. I signed my name and I got $25 in a little yellow envelope. And at that moment, I said to myself, if they're going to pay me to do this job, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I really, at age 11, wanted to produce and direct uh, big time sporting events, uh, big you know golf events like the Masters and the PGA Championship and the World Series and the Super Bowl and all these other great events. Uh, that was my ambition, and I did. John, if I can interrupt you for a quick second, you didn't want to get behind the uh, the microphone like your dad, though. I did not. Um, I thought that would be a hard act to follow, and I never I never gravitated towards that. I did have a reel-to-reel -reel, um, tape recorder uh, when I was seven or eight years old. I was a big New York Yankees fan, and I would um, I would do the play-by-play -play in my head of some of the greats from Mickey Mantle to Elston Howard to Joe Pepitone, and I did that, but I, I really loved the live production much more so than I did the um, behind the microphone, and I also realized that um, to get involved in broadcasting, you really got to start at a very small local station. There was no ESPN in these days. There was no Fox Sports. There were basically three broadcast networks, and I knew that I couldn't start right away at a broadcast network if I were a commentator, but if I was in production, I could do that. I did a brief stint because my, uh, my mother wanted me to at Solomon Brothers, in my junior year at uh, Duke University, my mother, having seen the lifestyle that my dad lived with being away pretty much every weekend, thought that I should at least be exposed to a rational way of making a living. So I <laughs> had an uh, internship. I was the only intern at Solomon Brothers that wasn't majoring in economics and finance. Had a good time. And when it was over, I said to my parents, I think I can make a lot of money on Wall Street but my heart is in sports production. So when I got graduated from uh, Duke University, I got a job as a production assistant, which is the lowest person on the totem pole. I did college football with the great Chuck Howard. I did golf. Um, I did a lot of shows with the great uh, Don Olmeyer and Chet Forty. And then uh, after two years, I decided it was better not to be at the same network that my father worked at. So I um, called up Jeff Mason um, and Don Olmeyer previously, who were two of Rune's top lieutenants at ABC Sports, who were at that time running NBC Sports, went over to see Jeff Mason. Um, uh, he, uh, I explained to him that I wanted to get involved in other parts of television other than production. He said, write down 
on a yellow piece of paper everything you want to do in sports television. Uh, I did that that night, met him for breakfast the following morning, and uh, I gave him the list and he said, yep, you can do that. You know, on-air promotion, rights negotiation, uh, that we probably don't need for this. But basically, like nine out of the 10 things I wanted to do, he said, when can you start? I said, let me give notice and I can start in a couple of weeks. At that point, Don Olmeyer, who, as many of us know, was a bigger than life character, walked in, lit up a marble cigarette because he constantly smoked cigarettes, put his feet up on uh, Jeffrey's desk. And he said, what's going on here? And Jeffrey said, I just offered Sean the, um, the job as manager of programming. And Olmeyer looked at, looked at me and said, great, just don't screw it up and walked out of the building. <laughs> out of the office. Although the word that he used was not screw. It began with an F. But that was my first day of being a non-production executive. And I was so fortunate that the uh, the vice president of programming, a man named Dick Auerbach, left uh, when I was 27 years old. And Jeffrey and um, um, Arthur Watson, the president, called me in and said, do you want to be vice president of programming at, C at uh, NBC Sports, I said, in a minute. So I probably wasn't quite ready for the job. It was a huge step up, but I learned a lot. I worked seven days a week and uh, always at that point wanted one day to run a, uh, a network sports division. Um, again, in those days, there were only um, there were only three of them. There was no uh, Fox. ESPN was just a burgeoning cable network. Um, so I set my sights on that after nine years, decided I would work for Mark McCormick, who uh, invented, as you know, sports marketing. Uh, he had a division called Transworld International, which was the largest ind independent producer of sports programming. So I joined IMG, had a really, really good time working for Mark and the legendary Barry Frank, who, as you know, was involved in so many big deals during those years. And then one day, I got a call from uh, Peter Lund, who was running CBS, who asked me to have breakfast with him. And I told my boss, Barry Frank, I was going over there and he said, I'll bet you he offers you the job to run CBS Sports because we both knew they were looking for somebody. I said, I don't I don't really know about that. He offered me the job. He said, think about it. I came back a week later and said, if you <clears throat> and Westinghouse, which was the corporate parent of the time of CBS, are really serious about sports and really serious about getting the NFL back, and if I can run the division and make all the necessary changes, I'm your man. And he said, uh, he said, great. I said, listen, I'd love the job. And he said to me, don't you want to know what I'm going to pay you? And I said, listen, Peter, I'm sure you're going to pay me well. I'm sure if I do well, um, I'll make a lot of money, but I'm not making this move for money. I'm making it for our opportunity. And that was in um, 1996. I hate to say it, but 1996. And uh, I started, uh, I, I went into Mark McCormick and said, listen, Mark, um, I got a job to run CBS. And he said, well, you have to take it. And I said, how long? I said, I'm not going to leave uh, in a rush. How long would you like me to stay for the transition at Transworld International? And he said, um, I don't know, nine or nine or 10 months. 
I said, Mark, I said, that's a little extreme. I, but I gave him two and a half months and I started the first week in uh, December. And um, uh, the first show I watched was a college basketball game leading into um, uh, the Army-Navy game. And I called the control room and I talked to a man named Arthur Harris, who was running operations. And I said, Arthur, it's Sean McManus. And I gave him a couple of suggestions on the show. And he later said to me, it was the first time that a president of CBS Sports had actually called the control room in many, many years. So I sort of, um, you know, laid down my card that I was going to be very involved in every aspect of CBS Sports. So it's been a great run. Um, I've, I've, as I mentioned, I've been able to learn from people, um, you know, like Rune Arledge and Chuck Howard and Don Olmeyer and Jeffrey Mason and Mark McCormick and Barry Frank. So I've been incredibly blessed um, and I wouldn't do anything differently than I've done. Um, and I will always remember that Peter Lund took a chance on me and gave me the opportunity to run CBS Sports. And and let's can we pick it up there, Sean? Um, so when you look at to me and John, if you agree or disagree, tell me. But if you look at the NFL, you've said it and we all know is the most important property for all these networks and platforms. And you had Fox's move with Rupert Murdoch and company in 93 to take um, the NFC package away from Fox. Then you come in, you be, like you just told us, you become president. Um, and the goal then is to get CBS Sports back in the NFL. So you're Sean McManus. You just got this job. Um, what do you do? Who do you call? How does that happen? You know, it's a really good question. And I thought about it almost constantly every single day when I got the job in 1996. Um, uh, I started out by making sure that I had a good relationship with Paul Tagliabue and uh, Roger uh, Goodell, who was his top lieutenant at that point. Um, I went to see him a lot. I went to see um, within about 10 days of getting the job, went to with Mel Carmazan, um, who had a great relationship with a lot of the owners through his radio deals. I went to see Robert Kraft. I went to see uh, Jerry Jones. Um, I went to see the Rooney family. I had breakfast with um, Bob Tisch, who was the co-owner of the um, of the New York Giants. And I said, listen, we want the NFL back. I know it's going to be a huge long shot, but just think about the history and the tradition that goes along with CBS Sports and the NFL. Uh, we, we want back in and we're willing to pay a lot of money for it. And I think it's gonna be good for the NFL and good for CBS Sports and good for the fan. So I really spent um, a solid year. I hired Tony Petiti in, um, in February of 97. Um, he literally would come into my office pretty much every day uh, after work was over and we would sit there and strategize. So I worked as many people as I possibly could. I did a lot of internal planning to try to get the money that I thought we needed. Uh, we focused on the AFC package. We believed that NBC was going to be going after Monday night football, and that might leave an opportunity open for us. Uh, we came up with a figure of $500 million dollars which was not quite twice what NBC was paying for the AFC package. 
We believed that we could monetize it um, in a way that made it financially attractive for us. It lined up perfectly with the AFC markets and our television owned and operated stations in New York and Boston um, and San Francisco and Denver and Miami. And we put together a very, very aggressive bid. Um, Robert Kraft was the main contact for us from the television committee, spent a lot of time with Robert um, convincing him that this was a good move. And when NBC was more focused on Monday night football, that gave us an opportunity to move in quickly, to do a deal, set the marketplace at a very high level. Um, some people thought we paid too much. Um, and when people asked me at the time, and I still say this today, why did you think the NFL was worth so much money? I said, because we're the only network ever to have the NFL and then having lost it. So we know the value, not just for CBS Sports, but for the entire uh, CBS television network um, at the time. So uh, we got the deal done. Um, I, uh, I I literally couldn't believe it when we got it. We made our offer on a, um, a Thursday night before the AFC championship game in 1998. Uh, NBC had a right to match our, um, uh, our offer until noon on, um, on the following Monday. Um, Paul Tagliabue said, I will call you if they match your number. Um, I was at, in Connecticut at the time. Um, every time the phone rang, I said a prayer and said, please don't make it be Paul Tagliabue. <laughs> when Petiti called me almost hourly, I said, stop calling me. My heart can't take it anymore. Uh, Saturday, at, uh, excuse me, uh, Monday at roughly 11 o'clock in the morning, I got a, Paul from, a call from Paul Tagliabue and he said, you have a deal. I'm sending over Joe Ferrer, who was one of his assistants in the programming area. Uh, uh, Joe brought over a uh, short form agreement. Uh, my hand was literally shaking when I signed it. Uh, Paul had already signed it. I signed it. Uh, Tony was with me and I took a breath and couldn't believe it. I started telling people and um, you literally heard screams in the halls of CBS Sports, all of production and management was on the same 25th floor. Um, people started running into my office. Literally, people were crying. Um, it was, I, I can't describe the feeling of exhilaration. Um, somebody went out and bought a number of bottles of champagne. We had a champagne toast in our conference room. And I just, um, it took a while for it to sink in. Um, the first people I called were my parents down in Maryland um, to tell them because they know that I had lived and breathed this uh, for well over a year. Um, so it was just a, it, I, I was cognizant of the fact that it was such a long shot, but it was um, certainly up until that point, the greatest moment of my professional career. And I didn't do it alone. I had a lot of people working with me. Um, I had a lot of money to spend and, you know, proud to say that um, we, we um, solidified Mel Karmazin's statement, which is if I can make one dollar on the NFL, it's a good investment. And we, in fact, made more than one dollar every single year of that first eight year deal. 
So, um, and you you mentioned it, uh, Andrew, you can't have a broadcast network today. Uh, and even so, back in 1998, a successful broadcast network without the NFL. When we lost it in 94, we went from being number one in primetime to being number three. When we got the NFL back in 1998, in um, in less than two years, we were back to being number one. So it was great for CBS Sports, uh, but it was great for the whole CBS Broadcasting Network also. And that, I don't know if you want to dive into this, but that's even more true today. The television bundle as we know it, where people have cable or satellite hookups for their home, which is declining. There's no question. It's declining. But without the NFL um, and other sports events, but particularly the NFL, I really believe that bundle would not be held together. Um, and when we are negotiating with our affiliates or with the uh, providers like uh, Comcast and DirecTV, uh, without the leverage of the NFL, those negotiations would either be extremely difficult or impossible. Um, and I don't want to minimize our other sports. They're all really important to holding the bundle together. But the biggest hammer that we have is the NFL. And when you look at promoting uh, and now it's not just promoting CBS that we do with the NFL. It's promoting uh, Top Gun by having Tom Cruise do the opening of our AFC championship game or Nickelodeon with the broadcasts we do with them um, or, um, or our news, uh, the way we integrate uh, our promotion for 60 Minutes and the Evening News into our programming. And Paramount Plus, where sports is, one of the largest drivers of subscriptions and new subscriptions for Paramount Plus. So the NFL now and CBS Sports as a whole is really committed and really involved in everything that Paramount does. Um, but you can't um, you can't overestimate uh, or overemphasize the importance of the NFL. Five hundred million dollars. That, that sounds like a bargain now, Sean. Well, you, we you doubled fleeced it. them. We, we doubled it the next time, and then we doubled it the, the next time after that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, when you when you think about paying $2 billion for a property, uh, it's tough to wrap your head around that. But when you do the math and you do uh, and quantify and evaluate all the benefits that that brings to Paramount, and as I said, it's no longer just the value it brings to CBS Sports or CBS Television Network, it's all of Paramount. It's um, uh, it's almost difficult to, uh, to calculate. And I'm not at all taking credit for um, the success of Top Gun or Mission Impossible or Survivor uh, a week ago where we had Jeff Probst in our NFL coverage promoting the premiere of uh, Survivor. Uh, we're not taking credit for that at CBS Sports, but I can tell you we were very instrumental in guaranteeing that those properties um, have become a success. John, I, I want to talk about the uh, the current state of of media, and you you mentioned the bundle, and you know we've had Michael Nathanson on as the big get. He's of course with Moffat Nathanson, who's question the whether like uh, CBS and NBC they put the NFL games on Paramount plus and on on Peacock have you noticed uh, like uh, take us through your decision to sort of like leak out out of the bundle by doing that 
you know, we um, we try to reach uh, the consumer and the sports fan any way that we can. And if he has uh, a cable hookup, he can watch it on his CBS television station. If he has no cable hookup, but he has uh, streaming, uh, he can watch it on Paramount+. Plus. We have the uh, co-exclusive rights for the mobile rights to our game, so he and she can watch it on their mobile devices. So as the traditional cable bundle is diminishing uh, each year, we're trying to make up for that. And one of the main ways we're doing it is on Paramount+. Plus. Um, our commercials run on Paramount+. Plus, So we get credit from the advertisers and from the, um, from the Nielsen ratings. Um, so we, listen, we are still incredibly strong believers in the power of broadcast television, as quite frankly are, um, are the commissioners and the men and women who are running these sports leagues. If you talk to, uh, to Roger or Adam, um, or Gary, um, or uh, Bob, Bob um, and you guys talked to uh, Bob Manfred um, last week, broad-based exposure is really important. It drives consumer interest. It drives fan interest. You know, Roger was very upfront during these last negotiations. I want my main product and the vast majority of my content available to every television home in America. So, you know, the idea of not being on broadcast television for the Super Bowl was a non-starter for the NFL, uh, which is true for uh, many of its highest profile games. Yes, you have a couple of games exclusively on ESPN Plus like this past weekend. Uh, you have exclusive games on Peacock, which I understand those games are always available on the over-the-air station in the local market, and they're much more the exception than the rule. But if you look at the value of the 425 window, which is always the highest-rated window of the year, or um, NBC's, excuse me, showcase on Sunday night, or ESPN Monday, um, or even Thursday night on Amazon. Um, you know, those are incredibly appointment viewing events, and they're all available on free television in the home markets, and the vast majority of them are, are, are available in every, every television home in America, especially when you get to the playoffs. And I know that that's, you know, why Adam uh, wants his NBA finals on broadcast television. It's he, he believes that that will help perpetuate the attractiveness of that programming. Um, you know, people talk about, why don't you put the Super Bowl on a pay-per-view, charge people $25? Everybody would pay. You get 115 million people watching. Um, everybody would buy that. And, you know, maybe in year one, they would. And then year two, maybe the matchup is not quite as um, compelling. So, yeah, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this year. Uh, but the Super Bowl would not be the Super Bowl if it was not available for every television home in America. And that's true today. And I think that's going to be true for many years to come. Andrew, let me ask one more quick one before yeah, I, I go back to you. Uh, you mentioned Adam Silver. You mentioned the NBA. I'm pretty certain that you and David Burson have run the numbers to decide whether or not to make a play on the NBA. Uh, I haven't heard CBS's name associated with, with bidding for it. Where, where do you stand, Sean? You know, our program schedule, fortunately, is really full. 
uh, during the NBA season, uh, the beginning of the season, obviously we have NFL and college football. And then when you get into January uh, through June, which is the, you know, the heart of the NBA season, we've got golf pretty much every weekend, unless we have the basketball tournament in March. We have regular season basketball. Um, on the CBS Broadcast Network, we really don't have the shelf space to be a carrier of NBA in any big way. Um, I think it would probably be potentially a good product for Paramount Plus, but quite frankly, with the NFL and UEFA Champions League and all the other soccer we have and all the other sports events that are on Paramount Plus, there really just isn't the uh, shelf space. Um, I'd love to have the NBA. I think it's an amazing property. I think both Turner and um, uh, ESPN, ABC have done a magnificent job promoting it and producing it, but it really is uh, a non-starter for us just because of our current programming schedule. Sean, when you look at the future, um, what's the biggest challenges though, when you look for the traditional, you know, you guys, you know, Fox is now traditional NBC, ESPN, ABC, where do you see it going five, 10 years ago? Like what, what, what is, what is your, where does your mind go in terms of where the business is going and, and what's going to happen? You know, um, if anybody tells you, they know the answer to that question, Andrew, they are not telling you the truth because we don't. Uh, we think we know what's going to happen. We think uh, direct-to-consumer is going to continue to be um, more plentiful in this country. Uh, we believe the traditional bundle will reach a certain level. And I don't know whether that's 55 million or fit, whatever it is. We still think that's going to be viable um, because of uh, because of the primarily because of the sports that are available. Um, we believe that um, a significant amount of the people who are dropping the bundle are picking up a D2C service, which is why we want Paramount Plus to be so vibrant and have the NFL and have UEFA and have our big time sporting events. So, um, you know, when I look to the future, um, you know, I, I think we have a good strategy. I think the deals that we have, which I mentioned, are uh, for the major um, broadcast properties are through the end of this decade. I think there'll be good deals for us. I think they will pan out. But I can't predict what's going to happen in, in five years. But I think I can predict that if you have a big time sporting event, that is going to be the absolute, no question, the best way to attract a live audience on television. And I don't care if you're on your phone or your laptop or your desktop or your big screen TV, uh, which I think is still going to be the pre predominant way to view sporting events, you're going to attract a big audience. And as it becomes more and more difficult to try to attract that audience, sports, I think, is going to be more valuable five years from now than it is today, because uh, it's going to be increasingly more difficult to generate that huge audience. So, um, you know, I I feel good about the business. Um, you know, I'm gonna be rooting for CBS Sports uh, on a daily basis. I think they're gonna do great, but I'm also gonna be rooting for the, the sports television business as a whole, because if all 
I use four um, uh, or five, however many outlets you want to say are involved in big sporting events. If they're success, if one of them is successful, probably all of them will be successful. And if one of them is failing, it's a pretty good barometer that most of the industry is failing. So, you know, I look forward to being a keen observer uh, on the outside. Um, anytime David wants to call me for my advice, I'm happy to give it to him, but he knows he knows what he's doing. And um, I, I feel really good about CBS Sports and I feel really good about the industry in the future. John, every once in a while, I write about the broadcasting moves of, you know, broadcasters leaving, moving around and, you know, in their situations. I know you guys always appreciated that. Um, when you look at your career, what is the one move that you made in terms of broadcasters that you're most proud of and why? You know, that's a um, a really good question. And a lot of them come to mind, um, to be honest with you. Um you know, Vern Lundquist taking him off the number two game at the NFL and doing SEC football, not only incredibly catapulted Vern's career, but established our presence in college football in a way that wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't made that move. Um, you know, bringing over uh, Dick Enberg and Greg Gumbel to CBS Sports when we got the NFL, I was particularly proud of, um, you know, moving Jim Nance to the number one role um, on NFL football, I think was was really important. Um, I have, a, you know, a lot of them um, promoting and nurturing the contract of Ian Eagle, uh, who I think is, you know, the best of his generation right now uh, was was really, really important. Um, uh, Trevor Immelman, and I know I'm not answering your question, and I apologize. No, I'm, I'll follow up. Uh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> uh, Trevor Immelman, I think um, I can't uh, I can't say enough about how good he is at that job, and I think he's going to be the best ever when history is written. Um, very proud of bringing over Tony Romo. Um, you know, I know there is um, more chatter about Tony than there than there was at the very beginning, uh, but I'm really proud of that. Um, I think it uh, it set a new standard for NFL broadcasting. So, you know, I can look at the the, the list of people, and you know, uh, I'm just so so proud of our on-air talent. Um, you know, I'm really proud of the way we have grown um, our female announcers and reporters, whether it's, you know, Tracy um, on NFL football or Amanda on uh, on PGA Tour golf and now NFL uh, football also. You know, the work that uh, Beth Mowens has recently done for us um, and the, um, uh, you know, the other women, I just, you know, I think that they've distinguished themselves. Leslie Visser is another you know, another good example. Um, uh, they've just distinguished themselves really well. And I think, you know, listen, I'm not objective, but I think we have the best lineup of announcers. If you look across every single sport, the best lineup and the deepest lineup of announcers in the industry. And, you know, that's a tribute to their hard work and the planning that we've uh, that we've put together. When, when you, Tony Romo, 
in 2017, you hired him. He became a sensation. Um, obviously, then three years after, he's courted by ESPN. You give him a 10-year uh, contract that was, you know, total value, $180 million. And now you just said, like, there's been, you know, some backlash. I wrote about the intervention, which, again, I know you guys appreciated. Um, we don't have to litigate that. But just where do you see Tony right now in terms of where he is in his career and what you see from your chair? Well, I get to decide what we're going to litigate on this podcast. Just because it says <laughs> Marchand and Orand on the on the billboard doesn't mean I can't do my fair share of litigation. I'm here voluntarily, That's may true. I remind you both. The senior uh, statesman of the industry, absolutely. <laughs> um, listen, there was no way that the incredible positive reaction overboard was going to last with Tony, especially in social media, which you all know is so cruel. And, um, you know, when Tony um, um, kept doing games the way he does, uh, you know, there was some negative backlash to a couple of the games he had. Um, I think that's natural, and I think that's the nature of, uh, of social media. Um, as you and I have talked, uh, Andrew, there was no intervention in any way, shape, or form. Um, I sit down with our commentators all the time. I'm having lunch with Bill Raftery. I know exactly the two suggestions I'm going to make to him, and I'm happy to share it with you. The two suggestions I'm going to make it make to him. I think he's the best in the business, but I'm having lunch with him and David Burson next week to talk about how he can get better. I talk to our golf talent all the time, how they can get better. Um, I happen to have a meeting with Tony Romo, and yes, I flew to Dallas because I thought that was the most convenient for him. I flew to Dallas and we had a very similar discussion as I've had with many, many members of our uh, our announced team. Uh, he took it well. I, I emphasized the positive um, and some ways I thought he could um, be better. Uh, we talked about specifics like um, telestrating uh, more on the offensive and defensive line, which I think um, and our production people are tired of hearing me say this, but I think uh, the line play at least half the time determines the success or failure of a play. And I on a napkin drew, you know, suggested ways that he could more highlight, you know, the pulling guard or the kickout block. He loved that. He said, you know, I, I, you're right. I, I love that. He, he then talked to Jim Rickoff about doing more end zone and uh, um, sky cam replays from behind the quarterback. Uh, we talked about, um, you know, being more active in the production meetings, which he loved uh, with with uh, with our crew. Uh, you know, we talked about, you know, being concise and getting in and out and letting the play by play man have his time and letting the broadcast breathe a little bit. Um, you know, we talked about when the game is at its absolute peak and everybody in the stadium is yelling and going crazy, you know, just to make sure that you don't get taken away by the moment and you remember that you're still an analyst. One of the things that makes Tony so great is that he's such a huge fan. And I think the viewer at home really enjoys that. Uh, sometimes it's easy to get caught up and be a fan. And I just reminded him, you're, you're a broadcaster first and a, um, um, and a fan second, totally collaborative. Um, you know, it wasn't some sort of come to Jesus meeting where I said, I'm coming down and you're going to listen to me. 
I, as I said, I've had similar calls with so many of our talent in the past, and I'm continuing. Uh, I had a call with Tony last week to talk about the um, the Jets-Dallas game. Um, again, collaborative, pointed out the positive, pointed out some of the areas I think we can do better. I had the same call with Jim Nance. Um, not an inter not an intervention in any way, shape, or form. So I did, Andrew, as, as you well know, um, take offense to that word because I thought it wasn't true. Um, but you know, it it certainly uh, raises the topic. But I think the the chemistry that Jim and Tony have this year, and the 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 the, the, the quality of what both of them have done, is as good as anybody on television. And um, I will tell you that. I think the quality of NFL commentary today is higher than it's ever been. And I could, I'm not going to start going down and listing names, but um, well, I guess I'll list a few. I mean, you know, having Joe and Troy at ESPN has changed the entire perception of ESPN's production. It really has. It was instrumental, I feel, in uh, in them getting a um, them getting a Super Bowl, to be honest with you, um, you know I think Greg, um, in his second year um, or third year, I guess, is terrific. And again, I could go down the list, you know, Chris or um, you know uh, um, Herb on uh, on Amazon. I, I'm just blown away by the talent that all these. Uh, all these commentators have, and I could say the same thing for play-by-play. -play. So, when, how do you think Tom Brady will be? I don't think anybody knows until the red light comes on. Uh, listen, Tom is—he is the greatest of all time. He's engaging. I listen to his uh, his podcast. Um, I enjoy listening to him. Um, if he puts the same kind of effort and commitment, which I know he will, into broadcasting that he did in his um, uh, athletic career, I think can do a really good job. Um, you have to be all in. You got to watch tape on, you know, Monday and Tuesday or even Sunday night as Phil Sims does. You got to watch a lot of tape. You got to call coaches and players. Uh, it's a full-time job. Now it's only six months of the year, but it's a full-time job. Um, and I think, um, 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 I think he knows that, um, and I think Tom, uh, I think Tom has a lot of potential, and he's got um, unmistakable credibility uh, when he comes into the booth. So that's a, you know, that's certainly a benefit. Um, and I know the Fox team well; they'll prepare him. They'll have their own interventions with him, which uh, which will be forthcoming. <laughs> um, but no, I think, you know, listen, I welcome him. Anything that's good for the NFL and anything that brings positive attention to the NFL is is good for all of us. So if he decides to do it, which it sounds like he does, I wish him the best of luck and I'll be rooting for him without question. Andrew, I, I have one final question. It's kind of a Romo-esque type of question, Sean, but you took a big risk in hiring Tony Romo and putting him at, at the number one analyst spot immediately. And it's it just a, a huge risk that really paid off for, for, for a number of years. Who do you identify as current NFL players that you think are going to be really good in the broadcast booth? You know, there are people who have decided not to go into the industry who I thought would be great. Um, 
but I don't really have a Philip Rivers being one of them for sure. Um, but I don't really have a list. What happens is um, when they come back um, to New York from doing a game, our producers and directors and talent will often recommend somebody, a player or a coach they met in the um, um, the production meeting who would be good. You know, I've always thought Mike Tomlin, if he ever wanted to do it, would be uh, would be terrific. Um, Sean McVay, I think, would be uh, would be terrific also. Um, but you know, I uh, when I when I was at the Super Bowl, it was the Seattle New England Super Bowl, and uh, I was at the Friday night party talking to Jerry Jones, who happened to have Tony as his guest. And I just asked Tony, you know, how do you see the game tomorrow? And he, in an incredibly concise way, broke down the Seahawks defense, you know, what um, what the Patriots needed to do to break that vaunted defense, you know, and just in, in five, sort of talked for like five minutes. And my, uh, you know, David Burson was with me. And I said, thank you, Tony. And we subsequently you know, left. And I said, that guy's going to be the number one analyst at a network. I just hope it's ours. So you never know, as I said, until the red light comes on. But I felt really good about it. I thought it was the right decision. And I still stand by it. And um, I think it's proved to be a um, a really successful move. I have one more that I don't know the answer to. When When your father and mother, did they go by McManus in their regular life? Or how does you you didn't you know you, so you didn't take you know, obviously your name is not McKay it's McManus what what how did that work out and and why you know the reason my dad is known as Jim McKay is when he came to uh, New York and was starting his career he didn't have a lot of work and they were launching a show called The Real McKay which was a entertainment slash news kind of a Today Show type programming and they said Jim we'd like you to host The Real McKay. The only hitch is you've got to change your name to McKay. And his response was, call me Jim McKay. That's my name now. It was never changed legally. Uh, his driver's license and checkbook had James McManus on it. Um, uh, so it was, uh, he, he got obviously well known by that name. But my name is, you know, is Sean McManus, not, uh, not Sean McKay. And um, he got very well known by that name, but um, he was he was first and foremost in his personal life, uh, Jim McManus, and not uh, not Jim McKay. Um, so if you got a check from your dad, it said uh, Jim McManus. It actually said Margaret McManus because she did all the fun. <laughs> Just like everybody so, else, John. My, fa my father did not write a lot of checks. Jim McKay, a proud graduate of Loyola High School in Baltimore. Hey, Absolutely. Uh, good, and good. and Loyola Prep, the Jesuits. Yeah, the uh, the good Jesuits there teaching them. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sean, well, thank you very much for taking the time. We we uh, it's su such a rich career. We could have you on for another hour. I think uh, hearing these stories, we 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 appreciate it greatly. Well, you you guys also, are, sorry, ahead. you also said you're going to root for CBS Sports. Will you root for the Martian and Oran Sports Media podcast as well? <laughs> now I know CBS Sports will be your number one thing you'll be rooting for, but the, our podcast, will you root for that as well or no? You will be a very, very close second, but you'll be second. And yes, I will be rooting. And listen, I like both of you personally. We have uh, we have our disagreements, which means that, you know, you are writing the right subjects. 
we have our disagreements, but you're both, um, you're honest, you're transparent, there's no hidden agenda, and I really appreciate that. So um, I, I love the podcast, and I love the uh, uh, the writing you guys do. So, and thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Appreciate great, it, Sean. Johnny, thank congrats you. on great career. Not that you're not going anywhere yet, but uh, but still, you know, amazing run. Thank you. What a treat that was uh, for, for me, Andrew. I, I love as people that love sports media, I love hearing those old stories that uh, the, of, of McManus when he got started, even before he got started at CBS, and some of the bold-faced names uh, that 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 he brought out of there. Look, I I don't think it's a stretch to say that McManus saved CBS sports. McManus, when he got to CBS in 1996, they had lost baseball, they had lost basketball. Uh, they had the Winter Olympics that they were in the process of losing. They lost the NFL. And he came to a department that was in utter disarray. And and Sean, uh, when, uh, you know, when he came in to run CBS Sports, he was with these larger-than-life personalities. I mean, think deep, uh, Steve Bornstein was running ESPN at the time, David Hill at Fox, Dick Ebersol at N NBC. And just, you know, th th those are the days that I like and those stories from those days. I, I just I love hearing. them. Yeah, no, that was tremendous. And to go inside those deals was great. Um, and then we also talked Tony Romo, which I thought was fun. And Sean was great on that topic as well. As you probably could tell, we've had some conversations uh, off the pod uh, as well. Um, but he did give some suggestions to uh to Tony on uh, getting better. Uh, but listen, you gotta give him credit for Romo. I mean, that was also something I was trying to get at. I mean, like you said, he had uh, the wherewithal and the guts to put Romo on a number one team, which, um, you know, we've seen happen before if people off the field, but you can, that's the thing like with Brady, like you don't know, like, like Sean said, you don't know if Brady's going to be good. You think he's going to be good. He definitely knows the game, but it's just a different view from the broadcast booth. It's one of the harder things to do. Like, that's the thing. If you do with the studio, there's no excuse not to be good in the studio. Like it's, it's planned. You got a lot of people in support and not that they don't support you, of course, in the, the broadcast uh, booth, but it's just, it's a different it's a different, there's a lot of different skills. And, and the thing about Romo that's very good, and sometimes gets him in trouble, but he's very natural. You know, and that's good. Like, you know, but you're doing national TV. So sometimes you want to, like, like Sean was saying, sometimes you want to bring that in a little bit because you are a national TV, but he is very natural. He sounds like he's having a conversation, which I do think is probably his biggest appeal. He just feels like someone you're just like talking to, not that he's, I'm the analyst. So that was good. But McManus, one of the most influential sports executives of all time. You talk, we talked about Fox's move to get the NFL from CBS. Then uh, you got to put uh, Sean's move to get CBS, the NFL back. Eversol comes in later to get Sunday Night Football back for the for NBC. Uh, so a lot of moving and shaking uh, when you talk about these deals. And so that's why McManus has got to be uh, considered uh, among that company uh, with his run and its relationships. That's what he's been able to maintain and been very good at, um, you know, his whole career. Well, uh, Andrew, that brings us to the end of another podcast, uh, a, an odd podcast of the master of the board, Chris Mason is not here. He's uh, celebrating his 20th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, there you go, Chris. Nice job. So, so what do we Mrs. call Why Mrs. Master of the board. Congrats to her. What do we and, call uh, AC Wyatt? She... The emperor of the board? Like AC is like. Well, 
I, I don't know. We have to figure out what she is, but she, but also getting to know Chris over the last year and a half, I, or a little less than a year and a half, uh, she has to be a saint. <laughs> She uh, undoubtedly knows her 1980s movie references, I think. Yes, right? yes, yes, he does, yes. <laughs> he probably has like a board. Every time she says something, she's like, hold on. He's like, hold on. Let me let me make a little, uh, <laughs> let me get to the soundboard. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. All right, well, AC Wyatt, of course, who runs the, the whole thing uh, and took over the board this week. We appreciate him. And then we have a special goodbye for this week. Yeah, uh, Krista, come on. We got to see you, Krista. Krista Myers, the- uh, Social our, media extraordinaire. Extraordinaire. The maven, I think, is what we called you. This is your final podcast. Yes, my final pod with you guys. It's been an amazing ride. Where are you going? I'm headed uh, to do some social strategy on the agency side of sports, so I'm really excited. Did Marchand run you off? Uh, he did not, but he tried. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't, some of the TikToks I wasn't happy with, uh, and I brought it to the heads and I said, listen, it's, it's Krista and me. That's right. So right. Krista, Krista <laughs> is starting a new job and, and that's uh, not, hold on, this for the record, this for the record, that's not true. This for, this for, there's no, you know, nobody like, you know, takes that the wrong way. That is not true. That is all made up. Okay? <laughs> it's a dog eat dog world in sports. It was John who said it. I, by by the way, I, I totally, I, but I never said it publicly. I just went behind Chris's back. Um, so when do you start your new job? Two weeks? Started, yeah, actually next week. So Next week? Yeah. And then you get married two weeks later. On November 3rd. So it's like a Band-Aid, like everything's happening at once. You just got to rip it all off. Oh, you got to do it. But no, I'm very excited. It's been, um, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, um, but so is every week when you're covering sports media, so. All right, so I have one question for Krista before we say goodbye. Your top mem Mando memory. Ooh, Ooh that's great. Um, and be funny. And be funny. Be funny. Say something funny, Mikey. <laughs> it's like that scene from uh, Finding Nemo where they're like, you know, tell us a joke. You're a clownfish. Every Everybody loves when people do that. Um, I'd have to say my favorite Mando memory is whenever... Um, I'd have to say when you guys were live on site at the Super Bowl, it's I think it's fun when you guys get out of your living rooms and have to be live on site with an executive. Just watching you guys sweat, I find it funny. <laughs> All right. That's why for you're the, out, Krista. That's why you're out. Get for out. the record, I'm the one who sweats. Marshan, like he 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 keeps a steely demeanor. <laughs> That's right. You guys are stone cold interviewers, you know, in the comfort of your living room. But let's see you out on out on the streets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, we uh, I will say that uh, everybody at Sports Business Journal uh, will terribly miss you. We're, we're we're very. I was very upset when I heard this news, and we'll miss you here at the Mando Podcast. So good, good luck, Krista. Yeah, thank, thank you. you I'll miss you guys too, but just know that, um, you know, everyone loves covering sports media. So maybe I'll pick it up as a hobby. Maybe you guys will be <laughs> my colleagues soon. <laughs> yeah, we, we just want you to comment and like, that's all. Krista, we love you, but all right, time to go. <laughs> See you later. Good luck in life.
I, I'm the one that gives the softballs. Our Marshan's uh, loaded for bear, though. I have not agreed to answer any of Marshan's questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right. Uh, I think you made it. That will make it to the end, the last segment. Yeah, so there's a Toy Story clip, and I think I wrote it on there, Chris. I mean, uh, AC, it's only... Um... Don't confuse us. Yeah, sorry about that. Let's not say we're going fast, but let's just go fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'll like every single post that you guys both do. <laughs> In fact, now maybe I can start arguing with you Ooh. on oh, Twitter. How oh. how much fun would that be? There That'd be go. great. Well, I won't respond, but yeah. Well, <laughs> you won't respond. No. I stopped doing that. I, every once in a while I do. I don't I stopped responding to people on Twitter. Well, this is a sign to everyone to comment on Andrew's posts and try no, to get no, him to I just stopped. It's like there's nothing to gain. Yeah. I, I, I respond. Me. I respond me. once. I have, I have a rule. I one one response and then that's it. All right. Well, I'll try to give you guys some good call of the week recommendations too. Um, and also as well, any Swifty news I hear, I'll be sure to send you guys. Yeah, the big. That's what I thought was gonna be your number one moment, was Swifty last week. Well, listen, Swifty was good. That was really good. In fact, I think um I had a lot of people reach out to me about how much I know about Taylor Swift and go. people arguing with me that it's not a publicity stunt. So. At this point, now I don't know if they're dating or not, but I a thousand percent believe that they met in that locker room in Arrowhead Stadium. And AC, if we put like a new, like a little, like after I say we have to talk about Taylor Swift, maybe like a drop of like like five seconds of her song, if you can. Um, so you're but, saying that was the blank space to write into? Yeah, yeah exactly. Damn, Ooh, we're just I leave like this. That. That's, <laughs> that's good. good. Just leave that, or maybe that's what this is uh, for bloopers. All right, you want to start over? Yeah, let's start over. <laughs> 